But we today are in week two of a two-week sermon series on what it means to be missional. Last Sunday we ran through, and I mean that we sprinted through, Scripture to show the fundamental reality that God is a missional God. There's no way you can argue against that. God is a missional God. We also see the reality that from beginning to end, he desires that all people of all time, all space, every tribe, every tongue, every nation would come to receive him and know him. That's what we see in Scripture. We see one big story that's about one big mission of God saving, purchasing, redeeming, and reconciling all people back to himself. And the best part about that is that he wants to use us to make that happen. That his desires that we are, who are here on this earth are helping his kingdom-building mission by going out and being his people. So in light of that reality, what we talked about last week is that we have to live lives of sacrificial and missional obedience. We no longer say it's not my calling. We no longer say it's not my passion, not my job, but we lay down our desires, our preferences, and our lives for the mission of God. Because just like God, From beginning to end, the people of God desire that all people would come and know and receive Jesus. One statement I made last week is that being missional and missional living is not a spiritual gift. It's actually a fruit of a spirit-filled life. I stand by that statement, but I do want to add there is another spiritual gift that we never really talk about. We never really talk about this one. Some of you may have it, some of you may not. You don't even know it yet. How many of you know people who love putting together furniture from Ikea? Okay, here's why I say it's a spiritual, maybe it's not a real spiritual gift, but I will confess right here and right now, when I put together furniture like that, I need to go to confession and repentance multiple times during that project. The last project I did was when Keely was born uh, seven and a half months ago, and I had to assemble all of the nursery furniture, which was also my fault that I waited to the last second. Like, we were in the hospital. I'm like, half the stuff's not put together yet. Whatever. And it took four and a half hours to put a dresser together. And I say there's a spiritual gift because Jacob Oberlin texts me and says, hey, I love to do that stuff. I'll come over and do it for you. Hindsight's 2020. Totally should have took him up on that offer. Four and a half hour dresser, 15-minute crib. Figure that one out. Just think about this. The, the, the life of my child rests in this crib, and it takes 15 minutes where a dresser takes four and a half hours. But why, do, why is it a problem? So often what we do is when we assemble that furniture, we look at it like, that looks simple. We take the tool, the, all the tools out. We take every little piece out that just, you know, if it's Ikea, there's like a thousand pieces that all have every letter of the alphabet, the Greek alphabet, the Swedish alphabet, the Russian alphabet. tells you which one to put together. You're like, okay, look at all this. Or you get a simple project like a nightstand. I have three of these. Two of them I put together. The third one's in a box still for a good reason. After the first one, I'm like, oh, I got this. This is simple. I took the instructions and threw them to the side. Yeah. (laughs) First one took 30 minutes by the instructions. The second one took an hour and a half. Because I got halfway through, I'm like, this doesn't work. Why do I, what is that? And whoever invented the Allen wrench, I just, I have a bone to pick with you. Just throwing it out there. Why do I tell you all this? For 2,000 years of church history, we have tried to figure out how are we supposed to be missional. And we've taken the very basic commands and instructions of God and thrown it to the side. And said, no, 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 this would be a better way of connecting with people. This would be a better way to communicate. And then we ask ourselves, why does it look like sometimes our mission is failing? And like in the, in the case of me and that stupid end table, it is stupid. Like in the case of that thing, it's also my own stupidity. It's just me voicing my frustration. 
But in, the, in, in, that, in that idea, the mission itself wasn't the flaw. It was a methodology I approached to it. And for 2,000 years, the church has debated in what method, what methodology are we going to be a church? We ask the question, what is our mission? What is our goal? What is our strategy? What is our area of emphasis? What is our style? How will we worship? How will we dress? What Bible translation? What is our platform? What do we do? How will we gather? When will we gather? When will we take communion? All these different things are just methods. They themselves are not the mission. And every generation of Christians has the next best seller book about how to grow your church, how to present the gospel in a new and mighty way. Spoiler, confession here, almost all those books are plagiarizing the original text. They're all like, oh, if you do this and this, and I'm like, well, it's actually right here. It says that. You just had to rebrand it. It's actually right there. Those are good books, but they are still failing to capture what I think we need to see today. But in that time, we rebrand ourselves as churches. We throw out catchy catchphrases, catchy slogans around the building to catch your attention. And we try to communicate in a way that is more appealing, more attractive. I love what Francis Chan said about this. And if you're using the sermon notes on the Church Center app, you can find this whole text. It says, reading through the New Testament, it's not surprising to read that Jesus' followers were focused on making disciples. It makes sense in light of Jesus' ministry and the Great Commission. The surprise comes when we look at our churches today in light of Jesus' command to make disciples. Why is it that we see so little disciple-making or disciple-making taking place today? Do we really believe that Jesus told his early followers to make disciples, but wants us in the 21st century church to do something different? None of us would ever claim to believe this, but somehow we have created a church culture where paid ministers do the ministry, and the rest of us show up. We put money in the plate, and we leave feeling inspired or fed. We have moved so far away from Jesus' commands that many Christians don't have a frame of reference for what disciple-making looks like. And you've heard it said from this pulpit, from myself and from Tony, hopefully you've heard it, because we've said it a lot, the mission of the church has not changed. Methods come and go. Methods constantly change over time to meet the needs of the current context. Methods change when staff comes in, when staff turnover, staff transition. Methods change when people see that they need to change their approach. Methods change when the trends of business models and entertainment models grow, and we try to evolve and keep up with all the latest trends. But the mission of God has not and will not change. The mission of the church has not and will not change change. We saw last week that God desires that all people come to know him and receive him. He wants to use us. And if that has not changed in 2,000 years, we need to go back to the original source and see where God gave his church their marching orders. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 is known as the Great Commission. And maybe you're familiar with this. This is right before Jesus's life on earth left and he left to be in heaven. Verse 18, he says, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he looks upon his friends, the people he's been serving life with for these three years. He says, I have authority in heaven and on earth. I have authority here and there. I was killed. I was buried. I've been risen from the grave. I've conquered life. I've conquered sin. I've conquered the grave. 
I have authority. I have authority. You cannot miss this. I have authority. And as my disciples, I have authority in your life. I have taught you. I've led you. I've coached you. I've encouraged you. I've rebuked you. I've guided you. I am now not just your teacher. I am now your Lord. So therefore, go. Go and make disciples. Go baptize them. Go teach them all I've commanded you and taught you. And know I am with you always. And in a few days later, in the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the church, and it starts in Acts chapter 1. We see him do one more command to his church before he leaves. In verse 8, he says, But you, my followers, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And I could honestly spend countless hours, don't worry, I'm not going to go countless hours, but I could spend countless hours, we all could, reading this text, jumping into it, just seeing all that Jesus was saying, all that he was doing, and the command, the commission that was given. He had just said they would go, and that he would be with them. He is getting ready to leave and depart from this world, but he's promising, I will still be with you. He said to them, wait here in Jerusalem. Do not move, do not leave, wait here, for my spirit is coming upon you. And when that happens, you will be empowered, and that's when the church will explode. And in just one chapter, in Acts chapter 2, we see the spirit of God falling on this ordinary group of men and women, and amazing things happen. And the church begins, and the church explodes over 2,000 years of history. And we could spend time talking about how the gospel moved. If you read the book of Acts, Acts 1-8 is almost at the table of contents for the rest of the book. Because we see them going from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. There's legends of Thomas going all the way to India. There's legends of disciples making it all the way to China. There's people going to Europe. There's people going to Africa. And how the gospel starts in one place and explodes. And we can look at all the history of how that takes place. But I encourage you, over the next days, next week, jump into the book of Acts slowly read through it. I also encourage you, as you read the book of Acts, note the primary person of the story is not the disciples. It's the Holy Spirit, empowering, instructing, and moving, and spreading this message of Jesus. And I also would encourage you, if you want resources and books about how the gospel went all to the ends of the earth and how we were seeing the ripple effects 2,000 years later, I would love to share some amazing books with you. One I'm going to reference here in a little bit. But today, I want us to focus in on the model of ministry that Jesus gave his followers and how they too modeled that same model for us. And I believe it's the only model we should ever follow. So the question that must be asked then is, what is the call of the church. What is the call of the church? I believe that the call of the church is to continue, very important word, continue in the mission of God by obediently and sacrificially taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The primary purpose of the church is to continue what Jesus started, what the disciples took forth. We pick up our mantle today and we continue in that mission. So when Jesus stood before his followers and his disciples and said, I have authority in heaven and on earth, and he commissioned them, they were not completely clueless about what they were doing. There's multiple times in scripture they are utterly clueless. 
But this moment, they know exactly what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make a disciple. They had been disciples for three years, but it wasn't just within the context of Jesus. All throughout Jerusalem and Judea, being a disciple was a common practice. Being a mentor and a mentee, that was a common thing in the culture. But in that context, over and over again, Jesus shows them what to do, how to live, how to speak, how to act, how to serve, because he discipled them. And by discipling them, he was now calling them to disciple others. And a point that I want you to hear carefully is that true disciples of Christ make more and more disciples for Christ. If we are truly being followers of Jesus, if we're truly being discipled by Jesus, we will always continue to make more and more disciples, not of us, but of Jesus. And you may ask, is this a message on discipleship or missions? The answer to that question is yes. Because discipleship and missions are two sides of the same coin. It is a disservice to ever take them apart from one another. This is the ministry tools that Jesus has given his church to build his church. They're not just programs. They're not just passions of a few. This is how God is creating his global church. How he's instituting these tools to bring about his kingdom. He discipled these men and these women with a spirit, and hear this word carefully, with Ness, not witness, withness. What do I mean by this? There's a, a writer named Gunter Krallman who says this, totally convinced that God had entrusted to his care these very 12, Jesus embarked on their training with confidence, single-minded determination, and a clear strategy. The key principles of Jesus' approach is in Mark's statement that Jesus selected the 12 that they might be with him. Over the next 20 months, Jesus provided his newly appointed disciples constantly and consistently with opportunities to share in his life and in his ministry. Together with Jesus, they walked and talked, they ate and they drank, they worked and rested, they accompanied him to the synagogue, to the temple, into the fields and onto the Sea of Galilee, to the villages and to Jerusalem. They were with him at a wedding, they were with him at a funeral, when he visited friends and sick people, when he dealt with multitudes and with individuals, with women and children, religious leaders and outcasts, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, they heard him pray, they heard him preach, they heard him teach. They saw him heal and deliver. They experienced Jesus in public and they experienced him in private as joyful and sad and thirsty and tired. He opened, them, he opened up them to countless occasions to move with him. He chose these men to be with him. He invited them into his life, into his work, and asked them to be with him. Him. This model was set for them was a missional discipleship model through this idea of witness in order to create a witness later. We have to see this. Jesus called them to be with him in every aspect of his life. With every aspect. I just showed you all the different examples that he asked them to be a part of. And after his death, his burial, and resurrection, what did he promise to them? Even though I'm leaving, even though I will depart from this world, I will always be what? With you. I am leaving, but now my spirit is coming. It'll be upon you and it'll be with you. And you'll know that I'm with you to the very end of the age. And that same spirit that is with you will empower you to go out and make disciples. Under this new direction, this new model, we see the same discipleship and mentorship take place. These apostles took this same principle and they ran with it all throughout the book of Acts. They invited people into their lives, into their mess, into what they were doing. We see Paul discipling and mentoring Timothy and countless others 
Look at the examples of Priscilla and Aquila, how they're inviting people into their homes, showing hospitality so that people can be with them. This is the same mission that we have been given 2,000 years later, the same marching orders, the same goal. It is not complicated at all. We don't need to make it complicated. We don't need to make it shiny or attractive. We must put the highest priority into our discipleship and mission endeavors because they are the primary tools that God is using today to build his church. And in our discipleship endeavors, we need to practice and apply the exact same principles of being with God, with Jesus, with one another that he showed to his disciples, inviting people into our lives, gaining authority in their lives so that we can instruct, we can teach, we can correct, we can show, we can serve, counsel, lead, and ultimately, this is important, send. We need to send people. If we are gaining disciples but never sending disciples out, we are not truly discipling people. And then we're not being missional because disciples always make disciples. And we are called to make disciples of this entire world. But the question is then, how will this ever happen if we refuse to go beyond the walls of our own church building? If, I, if our entire focus is just to disciple you and make little images of Tony and Scott in this room, we'll never change a world. And we're actually setting you up for failure. And I want you to hear carefully that the world around us is dependent upon us getting this right. There are 7.9 billion people in the world today who are dependent upon the church, dependent upon, more importantly, Jesus. They're not dependent upon an attractive church with the fanciest technologies that is keeping up with all the social trends and all the, the big entertainment trends. We're keeping up with Disney. Sorry if that's a sore spot, but we're trying to keep with all the, all the cultural trends and trying to put the best worship team out there, the best product out there, with the best charismatic speakers, the best teachers. That's not what they need. They need people who are discipling people and who are missional. And if that's the only model that we ever show, then this is how you do church. We're actually slowing down the spread of the gospel. We, we celebrated at Secret Church the other night and we saw what God was doing all over the world, but specifically in Afghanistan. That on August 15th last year, when troops left, at that moment, there were 10,000 Christians, 10,000 and a multi, I don't know the numbers, multi-million individual nation, 10,000 Christians fleeing for their lives, Taliban showing up at their door. If we present to them a model, this is how you do church, all this, they will never have success and neither will we. The world needs a church who's continuing the mission of God by obediently and sacrificially taking that message to the ends of the earth. A church who sees discipleship and missions as the highest priority, who are trying to be obedient here and trying to be obedient there and everywhere. But two things I want to add that I feel are crucial for all of us to consider in this calling. The first, this mission is for all of us. 
This mission is for all of us. I love being a part of a Baptist church. Now, most people will say, is this a Baptist thing? That can mean a lot of different things. I'm just going to throw that out there. There are 65 recognized Baptist associations and denominations in America. Okay, just throwing that out there now. But a Baptist distinctive doctrine is the priesthood of all believers. That we believe that every single person is on mission for God as God's representative here on earth. It is not just for the faithful few who feel called by God to stand before you in a pulpit. It's not just for us. This means that all people are ministers and agents of the gospel. Our jobs, those of us who are called by God to stand before you as a pastor and minister in the local church, our job, according to Paul's words in Ephesians, is that we are called to equip and build up you, to equip the saints for the ministry of God. Not just build ourselves up, build up our platforms, build up our social media followings, build up all of our, you know, our crowds, our followers. We're called to build up you. We do this through missional discipleship. So the first thing, the mission that God is calling is for all of us. And the second thing, we must possess compassion and urgency in this mission. We're going to spend a couple minutes as we start to wrap this up in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, look in verses 35 and 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, your translation may say multitudes, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Once you focus in on the word compassion, look at that word because in all of the New Testament, that word roughly appears 10 to 12 times. Every single time the word compassion appears, it's always talking about Jesus. That's important because what he's showing us that the compassion that is necessary is a compassion that you and I can never develop on our own. It's one that only comes from the Savior, Jesus. And what does this compassion mean? It actually translates to the idea of this a sensation in your gut that it hurts. And you see sympathy and you have pity upon a person or an individual. That's what this word compassion means. And we see Jesus looking over this group of people, over the multitudes, and in his gut, he feels a sense of compassion and love for these people. Why? It says here, because they were harassed and helpless. Other translations say distressed and dejected. If you look at the original language, it actually communicates this idea that they are being torn apart. The people he's looking on are being torn apart, and they are like this because they are sheep without a shepherd. If you know anything about sheep, we get called sheep a lot in Scripture, not always a compliment, just throwing that out there. Sheep are dependent upon what? A shepherd to feed them, to instruct them, to lead them, to guide them, to protect them, to care for them, to heal them. And he looks over the multitudes here. And Jesus, imagine Jesus standing on a hillside overlooking this massive city of people, this mass group of people. He sees the ones that he came to save, the ones that in a few years will reject him, the ones who in a few years will seek for him to be crucified, the ones that he has come to love. And they are just helpless sheep. 
without a shepherd, and he's there knowing, I am the good shepherd, but they don't know it. They have no shepherds. It was all prophesied in all Jeremiah and Amos that there will come a day when the, the shepherds of Israel will no longer shepherd the flock. He's seeing this right here. They are not shepherding the people, and he, they are left, and they're being torn apart. They are on the path towards destruction. So in that mind, in that mode right there, as God, as God, the Son of God sees this, he turns from the crowd, stops looking at the crowd, he looks at his followers and says, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. What he just said to them was, get to work. Get to work. Go out and see what God has done. He has prepared this great harvest right now. So go out and be a laborer in the harvest. All throughout Scripture, we see this idea of a harvest coming up multiple times. And most of the time, especially in the book of Jeremiah, this harvest is actually talking about the day that judgment comes. The day of the Lord when the harvest is there. This is when God's going to come back in judgment and gather and separate. He looks at his followers and says, the harvest is coming. The harvest is ready. The kingdom of God is here in me right now. And there are people who do not know me. There's no one going to them. So go. He's saying it's time to get to work. And he presents to them this compassion and this urgency, saying that the time that we have is short. It's time to work now. And then he tells them to do one more thing. Verse 38 says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. He says, I want you to pray. Boldly pray to the Lord to send out workers. What he did not say, ask the Lord to send those who have no shepherd to me or to us. He's saying, send out you. As Christians today in the church, a lot of times what we end up doing is we pray for the lost. We pray for the lost to come, but we never actually engage the lost. We never ourselves go to them. He's calling his disciples to bring the church to the people who need it. So for us, if you jump forward to today's context, look at the multitudes today. Out of the 7.9 billion people in this world today, 2.38 billion proclaim the name of Jesus. I'm not a math person. Tony is. But that's a lot of billions that are not. Of that, thank you, who out of that billion people, oh, that 5 billion people, there are 3.3 billion who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Does that move you to compassion and urgency? Or maybe that just terrifies you because you're like, I can't think that big. Okay, let's scale it back. In America alone, there are 330 million people in the United States. Of that 330 million people, there are 130 million who were not proclaiming Christians. Does that move you to compassion and urgency? Or does that still terrify you because it's still too big? Let's scale back again. We live in what's called the Middle High Valley. In the Middle High Valley, there's 200,000 people. That's really hard to find statistics upon us. Apparently, we're not that spectacular. But if you look at the studies around... There's a massive growing number of people who are fleeing from God, fleeing from the church. So it's naive for us to think that other 200,000 people, 95% of them are saved. That's not true. Closer numbers probably are like 50%. That's a lot of people who are on a path towards destruction. Does that move you to compassion or urgency? Still too big. Let's go back a little further. 13,500 middle school and high school students in the valley. Yes, I'm the youth pastor talking now. 
13,500 middle school, high school students. Statistically speaking, even if they are in church, 80% of them will not return after graduating. Graduation is in two weeks. Statistically speaking, we're about ready to see a mass exodus. Does that move you to compassion and urgency? Still too big. Where do you work? Do you work in a place that has hundreds of people? Do you work in a place that has a few people? Do you work by yourself? Are you retired? Where do you work? Are there people who are in your place of business? Do you look upon them and say, they have no shepherd? Does that move you to compassion and urgency? In your community, do you walk the streets of your neighborhood, taking nice leisurely walks and look upon houses and go, there are no people in these places that know Jesus. Statistically speaking, your neighborhood is full of people who do not know Jesus. Does that move you to compassion and urgency? Your schools, does that move you to compassion or urgency? More importantly, let's scale back as far as possibly we can go. Into your own home. Are there people in your home who do not know Jesus? Parents, are we so fixated on producing the best athlete, the best student, the best civil, the civic member of society that we are losing sight that there is an eternity at stake? That we just forsake the call of discipling our children. It's our role to disciple our kids. It's not our goal to outsource that role to anybody else, not the government, not the school system, not even to the church. It is our goal as parents, grandparents, siblings, to disciple our family members. Does that move you to urgency and compassion? The world desperately needs a church who understands this, who sees them, who understands its calling and their purpose, and they're filled with a sense of compassion and a sense of urgency and so much love they can no longer control it or contain it, that they just are compelled to tell the entire world that Jesus has come, the kingdom is here, and it's time to jump on board. So much so that they go all out in their mission by taking their call of discipleship seriously, and living sacrificially and obediently in their mission. My challenge for you this week, my challenge for myself this week is to ask a few different questions. The first question, where has God called and placed you? Where has God called and placed you? I use those two words intentionally here because all people are called by God. Specifically, you might be called to be a teacher, a stay-at-home parent, a banker, a truck driver. I don't know what your calling is in life. You do. But hear me when I say this. That calling is a secondary calling. The primary calling is to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Also, don't miss this. Mom, dads, your primary calling is not to be a mom or a dad. Husbands and wives, your primary calling is not to be a husband and wife. Those are all secondary callings. We are called to be people of God, and he has called us to be somewhere. He has placed us somewhere. If you need to ask where has God placed you, just look around. Maybe it's your own home. Maybe it's in your own school. Maybe it's where you work. You may say, well, God has never called me to be overseas. Obviously, that's true as of right now. That's not saying he won't in the future. It's also not, we also need to recognize that God may have not called you overseas now because we're not being faithful now. Why would he ever call us over there if we're not being faithful where we are here? But he has called you to be a part of this. So the first challenge, where has God called you and placed you? The second thing, 
Who is God uniquely placed in your life so that you would disciple them? If you need to ask yourself, who am I supposed to disciple? Look who you've naturally grown, become friends with. Who's your family? Mom, dad, this is a really easy answer. God's given you some amazing gifted children to disciple so that they too will one day disciple. If you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, there are people within your influence right now who are begging you for you to disciple them in the name of Jesus. To make them look more like Jesus and less like themselves and less like ourselves. The third thing, how can you begin to pray earnestly and desperately for the church to be sent? The church needs to go. The church needs to go. I love Hudson Taylor was an amazing missionary sent from England to China. And he said this about his mission. Can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while the multitudes in China are perishing? Perishing for a lack of knowledge, for the lack of knowledge that which England writ- so possesses so richly. He's like, how can I have all that we have? How can the church of that age have all that they have and possess all that they claim to possess and just sit by while entire nations are going to hell? The same has to be true for us in today's context. How can we just sit with our hands folded, our arms folded, and our knees folded, and just say, I don't know. We have this gift. We have the hope of the ages right here, and we don't share it. The world needs the church from beginning to end that desires all people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, every political context, every social economic political context, all these things that they are there to receive and know Jesus. You need to start praying for the lost. The social media of this church for the next month, every day will be posting prompts to encourage you to pray for the nations. I'll give you today's one. Starts in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I'd encourage you to set an alarm. Someone shared this with me recently. At 9.38 every single day, where that text pops up, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Ask that in boldness, but also ask it in humility, that the one, who being, the one who's being sent may just be you. And be ready to go wherever God calls you. And when you go, through the power of the Holy Spirit, with compassion and urgency, I pray that you continue to pray, I pray that you continue to go, and I pray that you continue to disciple, and I pray that you continue to send more and more people because the world needs us.